Congratulations to the Vegas Golden Knights for not only winning the Stanley Cup, but doing it in their sixth season in existence. That's not supposed to happen. It's Wednesday, June 14th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. With the Denver Nuggets NBA championship victory on Monday, four teams owned by Stan Kroenke have won championships since 2022. The Los Angeles Rams won Super Bowl 56 last year, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup a few months later, and that same year the Colorado Mammoth won the National Lacrosse League. But he also owns Arsenal, and they only finished second in the Premier League this year, so take that, Stan Kroenke. And apparently he's not content with all of that. The Kroenke Group is taking a majority stake in San Diego's Midway Rising project which includes a 16,000-seat arena as the centerpiece of a 49-acre site that will be redeveloped with thousands of new housing units, a hotel, and retail space. That arena could theoretically house an NBA or NHL team, but Kroenke couldn't own either of those without divesting from the Nuggets or Avalanche. Speaking of NHL teams, the Ottawa Senators have been sold. The price was just shy of $1 billion, and the team is going to Michael Ann Lauer who has business interests in a number of industries and is the CEO of the Anlauer Healthcare Group. He also holds a 10% stake in the Montreal Canadiens, which he will have to sell before he is approved as the Senator's new owner. Catching up on another team sale, the San Francisco 49ers investment arm, 49ers Enterprises, completed their purchase of Leeds United for $209 million. That's a third of the $625 million price they were reportedly planning to pay before Leeds got relegated from the Premier League. And that's the only Premier League team sale update we have for now. A report out of Qatar suggested that Sheikh Jassim will be the next owner of Manchester United. It seems that report had no new information, and we are still waiting to hear if the new owner will be Sheikh Jassim, British billionaire Jim Ratcliffe, or if the Glazers say, haha, never mind, we're not actually selling. Manu stock spiked after the report and at the time of recording remains up over 14% from Monday. Up next, we get a look into the financial instability of tennis professionals outside the top 50 to 100 players who operate with basically no financial assurances. I spoke to Ahmad Nassar, who is heading a new organization co-founded by recent French Open champion Novak Djokovic that is seeking to change that. We'll have that conversation next. All right. I'm joined now by Ahmad Nassar, Executive Director of the Professional Tennis Players Association. Welcome, Ahmad. Thank you. So before we get to the PTPA, uh, you have a long history of helping top athletes maximize their value. So just give us the quick tour of your career leading up to arriving at the Professional Tennis Players Association. Yeah. So I've been really fortunate um, throughout my career, particularly the last 15 years, um, to work with different groups of athletes, uh, originally starting with the NFL uh, Players Association. Uh, I started there as um, really the general counsel and then the president of our business arm, uh, focusing on licensing, sponsorship, content, that sort of thing, but all in, in service of the group of NFL players at uh, the, the NFL Players Union. And then more recently, over the last five years, um, got to really branch out and work with other groups of athletes in addition to NFL players and continuing to work with them. So uh, Major League Baseball players uh, and the Major League Baseball Players Association, uh, men's and women's soccer players, both at the, the national team level in the U.S. and the NWSL players, 
um, but then also the MLS players and then WNBA players. Um, all of that under the umbrella of One Team Partners, a company I, I uh, helped found a few years ago. Most athletes, and, and, and especially at the professional level and, and especially at the higher end of the professional level, they have agents that represent them as individuals. Um, my task and, and the job of all these players associations is to really represent and focus on the group, right? So if you think about North American sports that we maybe are more um, used to, uh, Aaron Rodgers has an individual agent that, and Russell Wilson has an individual agent that negotiates his uh, contract, but who negotiates the amount of the overall salary cap that all the players are trying to fit into and, and maximize, you know, however much they get of that. And that's what a players association does. And so, um, making sure that that is tended to and focused and maximized is really at the crux of what all players associations do. Again, on the behalf uh, on behalf of the group, not of any individual, um, you know, specific athlete. So now you're running the Professional Tennis Players Association, which was co-founded by Novak Djokovic and Vasek Pospisil. So what what is the uh, PTPA, and why does it exist? Yeah, so the PTPA is really um, uh, a new players association that um, is like all players association, player led, uh, player established, um, born out of player frustration of uh, not enough or not anyone looking after the group. Uh, As you said, Novak is the or or one of the best players to ever hold uh, a tennis racket. and uh, he's, he's done phenomenally well, both on the court and off the court. Um, but even or especially Novak understands that um, as a group, tennis players have really been left behind over the last 25, 30 years. And um, to, to his you know, really endless credit, hit on the topic of, well, we don't have a players association that is independent the way all of those other professional sports basketball, football, baseball, uh, soccer have, and not just in North America, but across the globe. And maybe that's a way to change the dynamic that, that the players find themselves in, in professional tennis globally. And, you know, it's really, uh, of all those players associations, I think Novak and, and Basic and other player leaders were drawn to the NBA Players Association, the NBPA. And the fact that, you know, in one players association that represents little less than 500 players, you've got everybody from, from LeBron James and Steph Curry to the player who is, you know, the 12th man on the bench. And they have very different uh, issues uh, and different, different focuses, um, but they're able as one players association to represent that broad of a group. And you have players who come from international basketball, you have players who come from uh, U.S. leagues and, and college sports. And so, that was an appeal to um, to them, and and so it, it we're really trying to build an independent, self sustaining players association that can really hopefully be here for the next fifty years. Right? There's a lot of talk in tennis celebrating the last fifty years of the WTA and and people uh, like Billie Jean King uh, and and the U.S. Open and and other events, and we're really focused on the next fifty years. And what kind of buy-in have you gotten from professional tennis players so far? The buy-in is uh, is is has been phenomenal. Um, there's there's just been a lot of angst, right, and and a lot of 
um, frustration. Um, and I think COVID really brought a lot of that out. Watching other players associations um, and other sports navigate COVID um, as, as, as they did. Um, and then having a really different landscape in tennis where the players were told, well, look, you're independent contractors. And obviously, if you're not playing, whether it's because of COVID or injury or anything else, um, you, you're not able to um, have uh, prize money. You're not able to have rankings points. And, um, you know, I think that, a, a, along with a lot of other frustrations specific to tennis, um, really helped galvanize. But it's still so fresh in everybody's minds. Um, and, and frankly, a lot of players are still digging out from from those op- lost opportunities that it, it has really made, I won't say my job easy, but it's made it less difficult because, you know, when, when, you, when you walk players through how it works in other sports and for them to, to say as players that they are getting by far, um, by orders of magnitude, less amount of pay and revenue as, as a percentage of what the sport generates um, is than, than all these other athletes across the globe is, is frankly impossible for them to really stomach, right? And, you know, the irony is I always tell the, the tennis players, I've been in the room with the basketball players and, and with football players. And even though they have close to 50% of revenue and tennis players are languishing at close to 15% of revenues, right? One five compared to five zero. Um, those those other athletes they're not satisfied you know they well, what 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 more can we get what what better deal can we cut um, these are a group of people who inherent to what they do in their day job are never satisfied and that really does fuel all the players associations but but now as as a nascent new um, players association at the PTPA it fuels what we're trying to do as well so let's say you're the 100th best tennis player in the world so you know, maybe you qualify for some majors you know it's an incredible achievement to reach that far, but you know, you're not a name that a casual sports fan has necessarily heard of. What's your sort of economic life like? Like what, what is that person economically insecure, at least some parts of the year? Yeah. I, 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 the, the very tenuous is what that life is like, right? Insecure is another word for it. You have, um, you have no guarantee of anything, right? You have no, no minimum, no tour card like there is in golf. Um, there have been some discussions about that, and we're hopeful that we'll see some change on that relatively soon, at least on the men's tour. Um, but that—that that is, you know, this is a standard, right? Every major sport, you get to that level where you're a top hundred of anything: American football, soccer, basketball, baseball. You—you—you um, you, you don't have that insecurity. You know that you have a safety net. Um, and remember, that only lasts in tennis as long as you're healthy. Because God forbid you have an injury, there's no safety net. And you not only lose your rankings points and your ability to perhaps qualify for those same tournaments a year from now, you you lose the money that you would have otherwise been playing for. And so that almost compounds the difficulty, right? I mean, it's already hard enough to be the athlete coming back from injury across any sport. But when you also have that economic and um, financial uh, insecurity and really just your own place in the sport, um, you, you, it, it only, you know, adds to, to the burden on these athletes. And so those are all issues where we're, you know, we, our fundamental belief is that if, if you're a top 200 player in tennis globally, you should be able to generate a consistent living from that fact. And we're not there. We're not anywhere close to that 
yet. Um, but but I think that's that's not an unreasonable ask, given the fact that a billion plus people are tennis fans globally and that the sport generates billions of dollars. So with the NFL, if you're, you're representing the players, you negotiate with the NFL, which has ultimately a single large, very large pile of money that you can say, you know, we want X percent of that. Same with the NBA uh, and, and negotiating with that league. In tennis, is there an entity that you can negotiate with and say, you've got all this money, we want this percentage of it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I realize we're on a podcast, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, make a gesture and then explain it. In tennis, there's a lot of this going on, right? Everybody points in different directions because of exactly what you said. It's fragmented, right? Um, the, the, uh, whether it's the EPL or FIFA or the NBA and the NFL, like you, you, you cited as examples, you have one entity that essentially aggregates the club, the team, the event producing entities uh, in, under one umbrella. And that has all sorts of benefits, not only for negotiating with players, but negotiating with broadcasters, negotiating with sponsors, right? And we don't have that in tennis. We have four independent, uh, independently owned and operated Grand Slams, which generate, you know, something like 75, 80% of the value globally every year. Then you have two independently owned and operated tours, um, one for the men, one for the women. The women recently brought in, women's tour, recently brought in a private equity sponsor, CBC, um, that now owns uh, a significant portion of a newly created commercial arm for the women's tour. So now there's yet another kind of more f- fragmentation. Um, and on the men's side, there's ATP Media, there's Tennis Data Innovations. Um, so there's there's other kind of structures that that further fragment what is already at least seven uh, and we have the ITF, right, the International Tennis um, Federation that that regulates the sport globally. So it it there is there is a a, a a a difficulty there that does not exist in other sports. Um, but I would say it's a difficulty that has held everybody back, not just the players over over the years. I think um, players having a seat at the table and being able to help unify that that morass, right, of seven really ten. Um, different entities, um, I think could unlock value for everybody, but first and foremost, the players. So what are the next big steps in, you know, what, what are you looking to accomplish in the next, say, six months to a year? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm fond of saying having three kids of my own, but all thankfully out of diapers and, and, and much older than that. Um, but we're, we're still in our diapers, right? We're, we're an organization that is three years old. Um, and I've only been in this role for, for less than a year. And um, so, you know, like, like, uh, like children that age, we're going to make messes. We're going to learn. We're going to stumble. Um, and, uh, but we're going to grow. And, and we're not going to turn into teenagers overnight. We're not going to turn into adults overnight. But we're going to grow over time. I think if we can continue to galvanize players, and if there are one or two or three critical organizing issues, um, things like, um, you know, prize money is a big, obvious one, but that's also big and, and complicated. And, you know, there's all sorts of issues wrapped into that. And like you said, you're never going to solve that. But I look at the drug testing regime. Uh, you want to talk about uh, an area that is totally um, just ignored and, and, and not having anybody to advocate on behalf of players collectively really, really shows is, is the drug testing regime. Um, and Simona Halep, a former number one player, nine months later is still waiting for an appellate hearing 
you know, meanwhile, in other sports, you and I wouldn't have heard that an NBA player got got suspended for for uh, failing a drug test unless and until he exhausted all his appeals that that's you know, those are the kinds of things we want to start. You know, the more granular and specific we can call attention to issues over the next three, four, six months um, and then pushing for serious change. Like, well, we're not here to just point out problems. You know, we already have many other leagues that we can point to. Well, what do they do? How much of that is applicable in tennis? Why could we possibly not have a drug testing program that looks much more like what the NBA and the NFL and the MLB have than what the the International Olympic Committee and, you know, WADA um, have that is just, frankly, more concerned about tripping people up um, and, and being overly burdensome on the athlete than about actually just maintaining a clean sport that that has a fair and level playing field for all the athletes. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Ahmad Nassar, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. That's it for today. Golf's US Open starts tomorrow. We'll have some special coverage on that, plus more updates on the A's coming in and whatever else is lurking around the corner. We will be on top of it. Subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Bye.